Hey there, listeners. It's Brian with a quick intro before we start the show. For this episode, we had special guest Stephen Markley join us. Steve's a friend of ours. He's also a horror movie fan, a screenwriter, and an author. His recently released novel, Ohio, has been named one of the best books of the summer by Vulture, Time, and the New York Post. It's been praised by Publishers Weekly, Entertainment Weekly, the list goes on. I'm not sure if we did a good job of calling out how big of a deal his book is in the body of the podcast, so I just wanted to jump on here and do that in a quick intro before we start the show. That's all I got. Go out and buy a copy of Ohio by Stephen Markley and enjoy the show. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with my buddy Ashvin, and today we've got a very special guest on the line, our good friend and soon-to-be absolutely rich and famous novelist Stephen <laughs> Markley. You want to hate? Hey guys. Yeah, hey Steve. Hey Steve. Um, uh, hey Brian. Hey Ashvin. You have a new good talking book to you. coming. Yeah, it's good talking to you too. Uh, you have a new book coming out, correct? I do, uh, but first I just want to say, Brian, you're just another lying little dirty birdie. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I have a book coming out. It's called Ohio. It comes out on August 21st, uh, and this might come out after that, so people should buy it. Yeah, if it's after August 21st and you're hearing this, stop what you're doing and buy Ohio. Not the state, the book. Um, Steve, why don't you maybe like tell us a little bit about it? I've read a little bit about it, but I'd love to hear it from the horse's mouth. Yeah, so Ohio is sort of a, a murder mystery and a social novel. Um, and it's about four characters returning to their small town in northeast Ohio uh, on one on the same summer night. Um, and then sort of the ways in which, uh, their stories, uh, miss and bounce off each other produces, uh, the, the driving thrust of the plot. And there are, I guess there are several mysteries at the center of the book, uh, that as you read on, uh, uh, become more apparent. I should really get my elevator pitch a little sharper. <laughs> I only have a month to go. <laughs> uh, try to make it rhyme too. <laughs> Uh, that, um, that's that, that's yeah, pretty so compelling. Before we, it sounds awesome. I can't wait to read it. I, I hear it's going to be sick. Uh, <laughs> this is what I'm. This is what's coming back to me through the internet. So I assume. Um, yeah, actually, let's. We're going to keep talking about that. But before we go any further, I forgot to mention. Uh, since Steve is an author, we are discussing Misery um, from 1990, directed by Rob Reiner, based on the novel by Stephen King. And it's starring James Caan, Kathy Bates, and Richard Farnsworth. Uh, and this movie is about an author who essentially gets kidnapped by his number one fan. So we thought it would be fun to get Steve's perspective on that. Steve, you're also like a, a big fan of Stephen King. So I think that was part of the reason we chose this movie. Um, like what's been his influence on you over the years? Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, from the ages of about 
12 to let's say 16 when I sort of discovered Stephen King. I, I think I read everything he wrote uh, in that four-year period. Uh, I mean, I was just uh, totally obsessed. Um, and Misery was actually one of my early favorites uh, and a book that I, you know, was was up until 3 a.m. every night uh, just, just tearing through pages. Um, and I also think, you know, I get this, the question a lot of like, what were the influences for Ohio? And I have my, you know, sort of canned response to it with, um, uh, you know, uh, just naming nice big literary authors, uh, that I, that everybody can get on board with. But I mean, really Stephen King was probably, uh, just as responsible for my, uh, writing career in this novel as, as anyone else. Uh, and I think he writes about sort of the, um, like the original sin of a town, uh, and, ha- and the ways in which that, uh, propagates, uh, throughout the, the characters in a book. Uh, that's definitely sort of an angle I used in Ohio. Yeah, for sure. Stephen King is all about his home state of Maine and it seems like almost everything he does is set there, right? Yeah. Colorado is a big one though. I mean, that's where misery, the shining. Oh, that's true. This uh, was in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Was he, uh, why Colorado then? Do you know? I think he used to take vacations there. Like the Overlook Hotel and The Shining is based very much on um, an actual resort that he stayed at. I've been to that resort. Oh, nice. I went and nice. got a drink at the bar that inspired the uh, that infamous scene with the bartender Floyd or Lloyd. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's right, Lloyd. That's a cool place. And I mean, the thing about Stephen King is it seems to me like all of his books basically come from, like he goes on vacation somewhere, like he'll go down to Florida and then just come up with like a really disturbing, uh, you know, idea for a novel based on a, like a two-week trip or something. <laughs> um, I, think, I think that's really like how he concocts plots. And that's one of his, the things I love about him is he just comes up with these I mean, he's just one sick fuck, you know, like he just comes <laughs> up with these absolutely great concepts. Uh, and then it's all about putting the bugs in the jar and shaking the jar and seeing what the bugs do. Um, and that's that's sort of the way misery works as well. Yeah, I, I feel like in a few of his books, he like the main character is like a tourist or someone who's like visiting a, a town and uh, and is like the mist, um, the sh- I guess, the shining and, and misery. I mean, like, have you noticed that in his writing? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, and it's, it's sort of all about, you know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't defend every novel he's ever written for sure. Uh, but just like when you hear the concept of it, like I watched, um, Gerald's game on Netflix uh, oh, yeah. a few months ago, which is just like so disturbing. <laughs> it is. And, uh, it's like, yeah, what, what would you do if you were uh, chained to a bed, uh, and, and your creepy husband was dead on the floor uh, and there's a monster stalking you, you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> I dig it. And they were kind of at like a vacation rental, I think. Or maybe it was yeah. their yes. own little rental home. Or their own I think like, that's second right. home. I think that's right. There were a lot of similarities to me between Gerald's Game and Misery. I guess For l- sure. largely I mean, like the, the whole chain to the bed thing. Just a bedridden character who's not in control of uh, the circumstances. Right, and like going through extreme pain. Yeah, yeah. Um. So... Back to Ohio, do you know or remember like where you were or what you were doing or how you got to the, the idea for Ohio or the original spark that led you to it? Yeah, I mean, I think Ohio is the culmination of 
thinking about uh, my hometown in particular and sort of the distance between um, being a young person there and and coming back as an adult. Uh, And in particular, uh, there was one point at which I think I might have been sleeping on your couch uh, shortly before this, Brian. (laughs) But I was... I was basically like wandering around uh, with no job and and no money uh, and no prospects after my first book came out. Um, And I went back to my hometown for, I I believe it was Thanksgiving, and just had one of those nights out at the bars, uh, seeing people I hadn't seen in a long time, uh, talking about where they'd been, talking about um, sort of the people uh, from our class or the surrounding classes who were dead uh, and just, and just really getting into it. And then it ended in this freakish thunderstorm. Um, and not to go too deep into the story, but a friend of mine ended up in jail based on a stupid incident. Uh, and I sort of woke up the next morning feeling, uh, pretty despondent about the whole, the whole night. Uh, and, but within that was sort of the idea for this, this conflagration that occurs when you and a bunch of other people you knew, um, return. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think that sounds that's heavy. something everyone can relate to. <laughs> yeah. Listen, this this book is dark. It's it's not uh, it's not published. This book. It's not like anything I've written before. It is. It's pretty raw. So you're, you'll be in for a treat. Nice, Brian. Maybe we and, got to review it for the horror movie club. Yeah, we could do a little special on it. Um, yeah. It's interesting, Steve, because my cousin was just down here in Asheville visiting us uh, mm-hmm. with his family and we both went to the same high school in Akron, Ohio, and we were just having a very similar conversation, like who from our class is dead and who else has ended up in some horrible situation. Like, and just realizing, like, I didn't realize it as a kid, but we were kind of surrounded by some depressing stuff. It didn't feel like it. And I was in my own little pocket of happiness and fun, but it's pretty crazy. Yeah, and I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, the book explores, you know, themes that have to do with the Great Recession, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the opioid crisis in particular, uh, which has been just devastating uh, across the Midwest, really across the country. Um, And so it's sort of taking those larger political themes into account as it tells this very character-driven story uh, about these four people and how how they've ended up where they've ended up. Do you feel like uh, the state of Ohio is kind of like a trending topic these days? I mean, like in, in the post-election um, era and, yeah, as you mentioned, the drug crisis, like th- did that have to do with you picking Ohio as like the background setting for this? Uh, I mean, I picked Ohio as a background setting because, you know, I grew up there. Um, I, I do think Ohio is an interesting place just because... It, it is such, you know, I, everybody says this, but it's a, it's a real microcosm of the country. Yeah. Um, and you can find, uh, you know, from the three big cities to like the smaller outlying suburbs and the towns, it's, it's just got a little bit of everything. Uh, and it's always perpetual swing state in elections, which, you know, means, uh, it gets a lot of attention every four years. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it was mostly just like, you know, this is my experience and you sort of mine, your own experiences, uh, for, for your material. Sure. And Steve, to jump away from books, have you, I can't remember, have you had any experience writing screenplays? Why? Yes, Brian. Uh, I'm actually in the midst of writing a script right now based on my own novel. 
Oh. Uh, so that's exciting. Nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, experience, I, you know, I've been, I'm out in LA now. I've been writing, uh, scripts for a couple years. Um, so that's, yeah, that's basically where I'm at. <laughs> Has that just ruined the way you, or vastly improved, just depending on how you feel about it, the way you digest movies and analyze them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, like, when you're a writer, you spend so much time self-critiquing. I really look at my own work and, and try to drill down and understand why something isn't working. So naturally I'm doing that to every book I read and every movie I watch, which I've under, come to understand can be super annoying. Uh, <laughs> if you're, if you're hanging out with me, like after I got out of hereditary, I, I felt like I had to go on, you know, just an apocalyptic rant about why I didn't like that movie because, <laughs> uh, because of, uh, the people who seem to be so mindlessly invested in it. Um, that's us. But yeah, well, you know, I'm not going to point fingers here, Brian. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's like if you build houses and you see a shitty house, you don't say to yourself, like, oh, nice, clap, 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 nice job on that house. You know, you're you're uh, you're looking at what's wrong with it, what went wrong with the foundation and why the windows aren't straight and uh, why, the, why it's going to collapse in the first strong storm, that kind of thing. That's a great analogy. My wife's dad is a contractor, and every time he walks in somewhere, you can see him just checking out the place that's exactly it that's exactly it <laughs> what all could go wrong yeah yeah um steve do you identify with uh the main character in in misery paul sheldon uh in, in any way like do you see yourself ever like being in that situation or have you ever like felt that way with a fan or something well ash an interesting question i think that I'm exactly like Paul Sheldon, except for Annie Wilkes is clearly the woman I'm going to marry eventually. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like me in that situation, I'm just like, oh, this this psycho woman is great. Uh, yeah, let's 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 do this. Let's call our parents. Let's yeah, how do you, how do you turn uh, that down? That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I I love uh, mostly Stephen King's protagonists seem to be writers. Um, and there are actually a couple key differences between the book and the movie. I don't know if you want to talk about, about those now, but uh, I love the part when he's writing at the desk. Uh, well, she brings in the, the typewriter, right? And he, he begins to write this book under duress. You know, this, this psycho woman's going to uh, force him to write a fifth or 20th misery novel or whatever it is. Um, but then it sort of takes him over and he's just like sitting there pounding away at the keys, clearly so... Uh, totally enveloped by it. And I love that because that's exactly the feeling that I get uh, a lot of the time where, you know, oh, I don't care what my uh, outside circumstances are. I just want to hoop. You know, I just want to get on the court and play. <laughs> uh, and so I totally, I totally get that. It's like, well, even if this crazy woman is, uh, you know, forcing you at, at gunpoint to write a book, it's like, well, this is still, yeah, I can make this work. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. I just want to give the listeners some background that Steve actually is pretty good at basketball, so it's a little less cheesy when he says, I just want to hoop. I just want to hoop, Brian. I just want to play ball. I'm like Kevin Durant. That's all I want. Uh, Steve, what what are your top five Stephen King books? Ooh. Oh, my God. That's hard. Uh, without ha- thinking about it too long, I think um, The Shining, Pet Cemetery. 
probably misery the stand and like like a seven-way tie between it under the dome tommy knockers uh maybe throw christine in there can't overlook salem's lot yeah it's that's hard that's hard uh yeah there there's and then the whole dark tower series like i don't even know how to rank those oh Uh, yeah but the stand is is probably that was a book that like I, i just couldn't believe how entertaining that was like it really i think i finished like a thousand pages in, in three days i mean i was just so totally compelled by it and i think um even if stephen king isn't like the greatest prose writer you've ever been turned on to there's something about the ability to uh to get a person so lost in a story that they, they just like totally vanish into it which is how i always felt about him as a teenager yeah, that's so true. I I haven't read that much of his work, unfortunately, but I remember feeling that way about Misery and The Shining, where I was just all in. And I had seen yeah. The Shining, the movie, over and over again, but it was just brand new to me. And obviously, there's a lot of differences there. But um, Sure, sure. So yeah, I guess we'll probably, if we do end up calling out differences between the book, heads up to listeners, we'll probably spoil the book, too. Um, nice. And as we get into talking more about this movie, in in case you're unfamiliar with it, so it's about this writer, Paul Sheldon. He crashes his car, and he's rescued by this woman who ends up being his number one fan. She's nursing him back to the health, and then it becomes clear that she has no intention of letting him leave or getting him to a hospital or anything. Um, And it's interesting, I'm sure, as as an author, Steve a good chunk of the plot is based off the fact that he's written this series about a character named Misery and he's just released his last book and um, what's Kathy Bates's Annie, Annie Wilkes is heartbroken that the character has died. And that's why you said he was writing under duress. He was basically forced to resurrect her in a new novel that Annie is making him write. Um, right. and so, yeah, have you ever had to write just like pure crap or something you really hated and felt like him where you just become so immersed in it, you forget that you don't want to be writing it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I think every writer goes through jobs where they're just, you know, pounding away at the keys sure. to produce, to produce things. I think every project I've ever worked on, you know, with all my, you know, sort of heart and soul have been projects that I was invested in, uh, so I'll have to I'll have to get with an Annie Wilkes before we'll really understand how I feel about it. Yeah, <laughs> it'll happen for you, buddy. Thanks, man. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so this movie is notice notable uh, because Kathy Bates won an Oscar for this. Yeah, that's pretty rare for a horror movie. I was I was going to ask you guys, did you? Uh, what did you think? Of, I mean, it's it's sort of weird because in retrospect. Um, her performance is a, it's over the top, right? But at the same time, it's it's still fairly creepy. Like it still gets me. Yeah, it is interesting to watch these movies where you know an actor got an Oscar nomination or win, and then really pick apart their acting. I do think I was kind of all in on her. I mean, it was pretty over the top, but if you believe who she is, then it makes sense. Like she's this backwoods like folksy woman who refuses to cuss and 
she's all like do goody, and then she just a switch flips and she becomes psychotic, and she does that pretty well. Yeah, Ash, actually, Ashwin, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. It's like I mean, the whole movie, the whole scare is built on like her acting pretty much. Otherwise, like there aren't any like pop out scares. Um, or any other kind of like typical devices that we see. So I feel like with all of it resting on her, like her acting, I thought really carried the film and her ability to go from like zero to 60 and like, you know, the, the switch of a, a light or something was, was ridiculous. I also think James Caan has one of those, you know, really important performances uh, where, you know, he's in the supporting role. It's sort of like Ethan Hawke in Training Day. Like that's the first thing I thought of. Where it's the less it's the less flashy of the role, but he sort of makes the other performer, uh, you know, come to life in that oh, way. Yeah. Where he's especially the scenes where he's like in so much agony, crawling around on the floor, uh, trying to figure out how to escape. I, like I just I I love that part of the movie where because you're always trying to put yourself in that situation, right? Like, well, what would I do in this? Like, how would I handle this? And James Caan just pulls that off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a perfect like counterpoint to the crazy Kathy Bates. Uh, and, yeah, representing like a, a normal person. And there were a lot of big name actors who turned down the role of Paul Sheldon, and I wonder. Oh, Brian, if that tell has... me who. Tell me who. <laughs> like everyone in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> William Hurt, Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford. Yeah, this guy's wow. like number twenty in the list or something. That's crazy. James Conn's uh, number 20? Well, no, no. Jack Nicholson, too. <laughs> wow. It's pretty nuts. I, I wonder if some of it was because they knew they would be in the secondary role or, or what. Uh, yeah, I saw some actors were like not comfortable with like the hobbling scene, and they felt like it was too like submissive or something, and, and that's what they were worried about. With which scene? Uh, the hobbling scene. Is, is that what it's called? Where, oh. Like the infamous. Yeah. Yeah, you're not like this big, strong, leading man. You're like a suffering victim just trying to eke your way out of this situation. So now we know that all 20 of those actors, their masculinity was so offended by this movie they couldn't bear to to star in it. Interesting. And I think the fact that you said you want to end up with an Annie Wilkes someday <laughs> says a lot about your own masculinity and how secure you are in it. Listen, Steve. if we want to do yeah. another podcast on my security with my masculinity, I'd, I'd be happy to delve into that sometime. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe once you get famous, for sure, we'll for sure, start a new podcast. Yeah. Um, Brian, I thought um, well, I, I thought it was interesting that like uh, neither James Can, Kathy Bates, or even the director here uh, really have like a horror movie background. They that like Rob Reiner was more of a like a comedy director. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I read that. I think the reason this is a Rob Reiner joint is because <laughs> Stephen King didn't want his novels adapted into movies at this he was just kind of hesitant about it at this point in time but he was really proud of the way stand by me turned out which was directed by rob reiner Uh. so he said he wanted rob reiner to do it Uh. and uh yeah rob did a good job yeah he's not who you'd think of first Uh, stand by me is a great flick too yeah for sure yeah steve as like a stephen king horror fan like do you feel like these movies do justice to the novels yeah, I mean, I think in particular, you know, Misery is is a it's a mostly faithful adaptation that gets the you know the main idea of the book right. And I I'm trying to think of a of a King adaptation that like didn't understand the book or was just a mess. Actually, did you guys see that first Dark Tower movie with Idris Elba? No. 
Yeah, well, I did not. Yeah, don't, don't, don't ever, don't <laughs> ever watch it. Uh, but it's it's interesting because um, when his movies are adapted, uh, sort of correctly, like Shawshank or Stand by Me, they make great films. They make really great films. Uh, and if somebody, you know, tinkers with what they're about a little bit, it's they can really, uh, you know, spiral into. <laughs> into cheese ball camp. What did you think about the Gerald's game adaptation? Uh, I liked it for the most part. I mean, that ending is, is a little strange, but, uh, you know, when she's pulling her hand out of the handcuff and the skin's coming off, like, you know, that's that good shit. That's, <laughs> I, dug, <laughs> yeah. I dug that. That's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Stephen King, it would be hard to adapt one of his books. Like his, his books are known for like being really long and, and verbose. So I, I think it's a special gift that these directors are able to come and like pull together like a, a one and a half hour, two hour plot out of it. Um, cause immediately they don't seem like they would translate that well. Like even it's, it's like a different version than what's in the book. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, those big ones are a little harder. It's a little harder. Um, the contained ones, Gerald's game, misery, even the shining, uh, where, you know, you have just the basic thrust of the concept and you can sort of chop out uh, little bits of story without losing the, you know, the overall uh, concept and the, and the momentum of the, of the novel. I think those are the ones that work the best. So Stephen King has stated that this one dude is a really big influence on him that I had never heard of before. Steve, have you ever heard of Don Robertson? I don't think so, no. Um, he's King said that he was probably his favorite novelist of all time. And he wrote these three books called the civil war trilogy in like the late fifties, early sixties. And they were all set in Cleveland, Ohio. Is that your Northeast Ohio <laughs> fact for the <laughs> podcast? Yeah. It snuck up on you. That's the, no, I like the sneaking up. I like the way you did that one. That's good, Brian. That's <laughs> uh, one of them's about an East Ohio a company called the East Ohio Gas have had an explosion. Apparently, they're about like real historic events in Cleveland, uh, and one's about the Indians winning the pennant. Oh, I'm gonna check this out. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Report back because I probably won't. Okay. Ne- next time I'm on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, dudes, should we delve more into the plot of this movie and kind of pick it apart a little bit? Let's do it. Yep. All right. Before we do, um. I'm going to take a quick break. I'm wearing some boxers right now, and I want to switch into tidy whities before we keep going. <laughs> Good move. Cool. Okay. All right. Well, I'll be right back. Okay. Okay, dudes, I'm back. Um, you, you more comfortable so, now, Brian? Yeah, well, I feel safer because I want to posit to both of you that Tidy Whitey's may have been what saved Paul Sheldon's character. Oh, please explain. There are many times where he finds an object of importance, like a bobby pin to help <laughs> him get out of the room, <laughs> or matches to help him light a fire, and he shoves them in his underwear. <laughs> And if he had big loose boxers on, I'm right not down. sure if. Yeah, exactly. That 
Borderline genius, the, Brian. Borderline genius. The unsung hero of this movie is a nice, tight pair of Fruit of the Looms. That's one of the elements of this movie that I, I really dig. All those close-up shots of him like struggling to pick up a bobby pin with you know the tips of his fingers. Uh, all, all those like really granular details. Like he has the um, penguin turned around wrong. Like I love I love that stuff. Yeah, so Steve's talking about a scene where he escapes and knocks a penguin over and puts it back on the shelf facing the wrong way, and so Andy notices. Yeah, this one of those movies where you're kind of like, don't go, don't go in there, or don't do that, or watch out for that. Like, it's very much a thriller. Um, you're always just on your ed- the edge of your seat in these moments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Ashley. Oh, well, are, are there other movies where like you have a main character that's like in this kind of position? Um, that, that, that this reminds you guys of like would Saw be like a, like in Saw you have like a main character that's being tortured I, I'm wondering if that's like a, there are other movies like that that you guys felt like this was similar to hmm. Steve do you have anything to say about Saw? Uh, yeah I mean I, I think well I mentioned this before like any any genre of thriller or horror movie where the, the audience member the viewer cannot help but imagine what they would try to do in this scenario I think that that always works it literally always works because it, it attacks that part of your brain where it's like, well, how would I, you know, handle this horrifying situation? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so the, maybe the original saw, like as those movies go on, it's like, you know, you've got to like undo a puzzle or the car's going to drive into you, your belly and like separate you. I don't know, whatever it might be. I was trying to give you the opportunity there to admit that you've seen every saw movie not, in the theater. Brian, not just every saw movie in the theater on opening weekends. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. I should have the horror podcast. Uh, I don't know what the hell you guys are doing. God. Yeah, honestly. That's why we, we bring people like you on every once in a while. <laughs> Wait, can I ask a quickly um, an unrelated question? Do it. Okay. Brian, on an earlier podcast, you mentioned your wife doesn't like horror movies. Ashvin, does your wife like horror movies? No, she doesn't. Yeah. So what do you guys do? Because I remember when I visited Brian in Asheville, like we had to watch a horror movie because Kelly will never watch them with him. Uh, we started. I just, we started this club. Yeah, we started <laughs> yeah, the <that's>, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I meant more like, how does your marriage survive? But that's fine. No, that's the podcast is good too. That's good too. Well, I feel like we're kind of at a disadvantage of becoming horror nerds because, like, our friends Amy and Joseph. Amy, Amy of Amy May Pop Art listeners, mm-hmm. they are married and they both love horror movies, so they can see like infinitely more horror movies than we can unless we want to like be horrible husbands and fathers. Yeah, <laughs> uh, as someone who plans to be a horrible husband and father, uh, I, I'll just continue to watch uh, horror movies right through it. Yeah, you go on without us. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions. Do you think this movie had anything to do with like the genre of films that have become known as torture porn, like Saw and oh. Hostel? Like this is a hostage situation who's essentially being tortured. It's not as gratuitous, but mm-hmm. I can't help but wonder if that has this had some influence. Yeah, I mean, I, it probably you know you could trace a lot of modern horror back to you know those those king books that were coming out in the 70s and 80s i do think what makes this so vastly superior to those movies is rather than going for the gross out it has like one decent gross out 
Um, oh yeah. But it's it's just so unsettling versus disgusting. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. For sure. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. not vomitous. It just like gets under your skin, and you care about the characters. Like this is a real movie with character development and a real plot. Yeah. What do you think, Ash? Yeah, I feel like it was, it was a really good balance. It didn't go like overboard like some of the uh, the torture porn uh, does. But uh, yeah, th- this is really good balance. I love speaking of character development. I feel like this is a common theme in movies where you've got your victim, somebody's in trouble. And then you've got a parallel plot line of characters, often a police chief or a local sheriff who's like trying to get to the bottom of things. Yeah. And I absolutely loved the sheriff character. Buster. In this. What did you guys think about that? Buster, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked him a lot. He reminded me of like uh, almost like in Fargo or like No Country for Old Men, like those kind of sheriffs uh, that are just kind of clueless and like a, a case comes their way and they're not used to that kind of thing. It, it was a nice... Uh, uh, like humor kind of uh, to offset the story that was going on. Yeah. Buster's a great character. His dialogue with his wife is great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> their, their dynamic is great. Um, and then I don't, are we supposed to announce spoilers? I don't know. Yeah. Go for it. Well, I mean, just uh, Buster's demise is, is basically the exact same thing that happens to Scatman Crothers in the shining where like this character finally arrives uh, to rescue. He's, he's figured it all out. And then instead of not, he doesn't get an ax to the chest, but, uh, you know, Annie takes care of him. It's chest trauma. He gets shot from behind through the chest. Yeah. So I feel like don't, don't be the guy who's rescuing, uh, in a Stephen King novel. Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, it reminded me a lot of, of Doc Holleran from The Shining because he's kind of not unassuming, but like he's just the cook, uh, but he ends up you know, almost being the hero. And then in misery, like the big wigs, maybe like the state police have written Paul Sheldon off as dead, but he's just the local sheriff in an office with no technology and nothing really going on. And he's the one who's outsmarting them and digging further into it. I feel like it gives a certain blue collarness that I see in some of Stephen King's work. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I, I, I've always found the way Stephen King portrays working class uh, life interesting uh, because, you know, he, he grew up extremely poor with no father. Um, and so he can imbue characters, you know, blue collar characters, either with, you know, a certain menace uh, or ignorance, but also with, um, you know, a lot of honor. And, you know, there's always that sort of working class character who is unassuming, who isn't uh, attempting to be flashy in any way, but is clearly, uh, more clever and, and more worldly than, you know, uh, the, the people, uh, in, in the big city who are, who are either coming in or who he's calling like with the agent, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I guess the sheriff and the literary agent are the only people that we see actively trying to figure out what's going on with Paul. Yeah. And a quick note on that agent's office. I, I have an agent in New York city. That is not what her office looks like at all. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's more the Goldman Sachs, like cocaine and hookers party uh, room than it is at literary agents. It looked like the offices from Wolf on wall street. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Investment banker. Yeah. Um, let's see. What else should we talk? What are some of your least favorite things about this movie if you have any oh Ashwin you go first 
Well, you know, just in the opening scene, like the way he was driving after uh, when he <laughs> yeah. finished that book, it's like, had, had he never driven in snow before? What, what was that? Ashwin, I literally have written down as my very first note when watching this movie, Paul Sheldon has clearly never driven in snow before. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it, and it sounds like he hangs out in Colorado like quite a bit based on like right. what they see during the movie. <laughs> yeah. Kind of yeah, cool. he was going to the same lodge he goes to to write like every book. Yeah. But suddenly he doesn't know how to drive in the snow. <laughs> um, fun fact, The Shining started the same way with a car driving in the mountains in the snow. Yeah, I feel like they just took footage from it almost. Uh, <laughs> Except where like, they were like, wait, Jack Nicholson's way too good of a driver. We need to screw this <laughs> no, up. I was that's how, yeah, that's how he got the job. James Caan was just that bad of a snow, snow-based driver. <laughs> Yeah, we need a really bad snow driver. So yeah, he's driving. That's how it starts. He's driving through the snow. He crashes the car. And Annie is the one who saves him. How did you guys feel about... I don't know. I, You guys are saying you liked James Conn a lot. There was something weird about... So Annie was really hokey and folksy, but also like psychotic and menacing. Mm-hmm. And when he would lie to her, it was just, like, so apparent that he was lying. Like, he switched from his normal personality to this really folksy, charming personality, which I guess was necessary, but something about it I found hard to digest. What did you guys think about that? Yeah, I always prefer when characters lie in movies uh, or novels that that they are excellent liars. Uh, I I agree with you, Brian. I've... Definitely picked up on that. Yeah, he was definitely like pandering to the audience uh, in this yeah. one, like where, where like yeah, he wanted people to know he was lying. But you're right; it kind of detracts from the story. Yeah, yeah, something about it just rubbed me the wrong way. I think that it was. Have you guys seen Elf, the Will Ferrell movie? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. So James Con is the dad in that, and he's kind of similar. Like he's a jerk most of the movie and then he like comes around and starts saying sweet stuff and you just can't take it seriously. <laughs> uh, you're really hating on James Conn now, huh? Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, he did it. He did a good job. No, Brian, but, the uh, way he died in the Godfather. That was terrible too. Sure. All right. Fine. <laughs> Stupid idiot. <laughs> but I can't see, even though we listed off all those names, I can't see any of them doing a better job than James Conn. I'll admit. Yeah, I, th- I think he did a really good job. I was a little disappointed we didn't see more of the pig. Uh, she had a pig named Misery. Did you guys expect the pig to come back? Steve, do you remember if that was an important plot point in the book? <sighs> you know, I. it's weird because I remember certain parts of the book so well, but I don't recall the pig. I'm pretty sure it was in there. Um, and it's it's a fine element. It's just like the problem is when James Conn is rolling around the house, you're wondering, like, well, where the hell is this pig? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, that's so it was never clear to me where the pig lived. Yeah. Yep. I would assume it lived outside. And she just lets it into the house every once in a while? Yeah. Yeah, I would assume so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about all that. <laughs> oh, Steve. I mean, Annie Wilkes is just in, endangering her role as the future ex Mrs. Markley if she brings the pig into it. <laughs> and no dogs either. Yeah, yeah, right, right. If you want to marry this, Stephen Markley. Um, well, what do you think? Should I go through the plot really quickly, high level outline, and we can jump in and talk about problems or things we loved at certain parts? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So I'll just try to be super quick and interrupt me if there's anything you guys want to say. So 
We already said car crash. She finds him and claims to be his number one fan. And at first she's kind of acting all sweet and maybe she's just a little bit weird. But there's basically just like one freak out after another. She loses her temper with him because there's profanity in his latest book that he's written. He's on the way back from this lodge having written. And she's so angry about it that she makes him burn the book. And, uh, and Brian, this is like the first time you start to realize there's something kind of off about it, right? Yeah, this is when you're like, okay, she's not just weird, she's insane. Yeah. Steve, what's your procedure? So this was his only copy of the manuscript, because they said he was superstitious and never made a copy. What is your procedure when you're writing something yeah. in terms of backing it up? I mean, that's that's I'll say that's an element of the book and the movie that is, you know, uh, I, I don't find particularly realistic. Maybe an author has done something similar to that before, but my sheer terror at having lost that much work always compels me to, you know, now we have the cloud, so it doesn't really matter. But before the cloud, I would, uh, have multiple backups, um, of everything I was working on. So, you know, uh, they need it for the plot, but I'll tell you what, if somebody had put Ohio on a barbecue grill (laughs) and told me to burn it, (laughs) I I would have gone with burning myself alive first. That's like way too much, uh, time and effort to, to do that. Yeah, I imagine that scene is especially painful for an author. Well, so can I get into it? Well, finish your thing and then I'll get into a difference. No, no, do it, do it. It has well, it has to do with the end. So, go ahead, keep rolling. Okay, keep rolling. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, and so then, at some point, so his new book comes out while he's there. She reads it, finds out that Misery, the beloved character of this long series, dies. And that's when she gets really pissed and starts to reveal just how serious the situation is. She tells him she's been saying that she's trying to call his daughter or his agent when she goes into town because the phone lines are down. And then she reveals that she hasn't called anybody and there's no one coming to help him. And that's when it's like, okay, this is a hostage hostage situation. Um, So kind of like Steve mentioned, there's just a whole bunch of scenes of him trying to like sneak into the kitchen and on his wheelchair and his legs are completely shattered. I don't know if we mentioned that he's like in bad shape. So he's like crawling on the ground, trying to escape this room. He gets a knife, um, and hides it under his mattress or in the mattress. And you think this might be when he's going to like get the upper hand on her, but he's, um, knocked a penguin off the shelf in the main room and puts it back the wrong way. So she's on to him and then she just gets more violent and trusts him less. Um, and starts calling him a dirty birdie, which is why Steve called me a dirty birdie. <laughs> it took us a long time to get to that. I feel like uh, people are going to yeah. listen in the beginning. This of the whole podcast, podcast everyone's they're like, think yeah. it's like weird. Uh, I was thinking it was weird. This novel <laughs> sounds <laughs> intriguing, but dirty birdie, I can't, <laughs> I can't get on board with this guy. Yeah, that's some inside joke that you guys had. <laughs> um. So yeah, and then while this is happening, she. We're seeing side by side in the plot the sheriff trying to find him and his wife, and they both just deadpan each other a lot. They're kind of comic relief, um, which is why it's so and lovable, which is why it's pretty painful when this dude gets shot by Annie towards the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at some point, she gets so frustrated with Paul that she hobbles him by like putting like a four by four post almost or something like that between his two right above his ankles. Um, 
and then she takes a sledgehammer and hits his ankle so that it, like, breaks against the post. And that's yeah. when you see, like, the ankle just go the complete wrong... Like, you see her hit his ankle. Yeah, that was a tough yeah, scene. Yeah, it was... Yeah. That's... that's Isn't that, like, one of... Uh, I think that, that, like, scene makes the list of, like, one of the top hundred scary scenes or something in on a list somewhere? Yeah, one of those Bravo lists. Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the key... Dif- well, no, I don't know how key this is. One of the differences between the book and the film is that in the book, she actually cuts his foot off um and i i always wondered why they changed it uh maybe because you know it's it's a harder special effect uh but it's i don't know it almost works for me better uh with the hobbling just because it's such an injury that makes you think of the frailty of the human body like there's there's a gross out element to it um, that just feels more realistic than watching someone cut off a fake foot, if that makes sense. Sort of a la saw. Yeah. I agree. And I... Go ahead, Ashwin. Oh, no, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I see what you're saying. I mean, that, that, that seems a lot more believable than, like, the, the pain you'd feel watching a, a foot get cut into. It seems to me like some horror movies are what could be called genre films where they're just really conforming tightly to the horror movie tropes Mm -hmm. and the genre standards. And then sometimes the very best horror movies, um, are just good movies that are scary and have horror elements and don't cling as tightly to the paint by numbers horror thing. Right. And I think completely cutting the foot off would have taken it back kind of down a notch closer to just a genre exercise. And kind of just to echo what you said, Steve, it almost makes it a little more brutal that it's not like, oh, we're just descended into like guts and gore and I don't want to look. It's like, oh, this poor man. Like, yeah, it kind of keeps it on the straight and narrow a little bit more. Yeah. And uh, they don't even show uh, Annie do the other foot. Uh, We just get James Conn's reaction. Um, So it's 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 one of those, you know, it's one of those Jaws things where it's like actually the less you see in some ways, uh, you know, raises the stakes rather, rather than diminishes them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, for sure. And, and I think like the fact that you don't really see too much, uh, gross stuff or like torture going on before this, like that out of nowhere, uh, it's just such a, um, like, yeah, it just jumps out so much. It's kind of a shock. For sure. Hey, uh, mm-hmm. do you guys remember in Pet Cemetery? Wasn't there a, a scene where someone's foot was like cut from the back? Does that sound familiar? Oh, you mean when the the monster little kid cuts the dude's Achilles? Yeah, that was, that was another like foot thing. That was kind of freaky in that one. That Pet Cemetery. That movie. That movie is scary as fuck. I watched that way too young, and that <laughs> yeah. that movie is freaky, <laughs> uh, and yeah, not but- like necessarily in a. It's not like as good of a movie as Misery or The Shining, but it's just got these moments where you're just like, you know, yeah, real nightmare material. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm in the same boat as you with that one. I watched it too young. Yeah, me too. And that like seemed like... I think like, I was like eight when I watched that. Wait, what'd you say, Ashman? Oh, yeah. For, like, yeah, I think I saw it really young too and that scene like just really stuck with me. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, rough stuff. <laughs> um. Okay, well, let's see. What else is going on in the plot? So she she hobbles him. And 
Then we're back with the sheriff, and he's getting closer to finding Paul. He goes into the local shop and finds out that Annie's been coming into town buying printing paper so that Paul can write this novel for her where he resurrects misery. And that's when he enters the house, and he's questioning her. And she's, like, really sharp at answering these questions. Yeah, I she's a good really, liar. Yeah. Well, we, I appreciated that. We know from the photo album that she's, you know, been accused of killing children in hospitals, that she, you know, has an ex-husband who's dead. Um, she's adept at getting out of these situations. And why isn't this the first place they would look if they knew there was somebody in the area who had been at least accused of all these horrible crimes, if not convicted? Mm, that Wouldn't that like be the first hole. place they'd look for? Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys remember in those articles that she had, which uh, showed like the stuff that she had done in the past? Did, did that did it have her real name, uh, or was that like under a different name? Had she like changed her identity at all? I think it was Annie Wilkes. I think it was her real name. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, no, yeah, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Maybe that's tightened up in the book somehow. Yeah, I can't recall. So there's this tense scene where the sheriff's questioning Annie, and she's pretty slick, and she gets out of it essentially. Um, and then the sheriff exits the house. She's shoved Paul in the basement and then he manages to knock something over in the basement, which makes a loud noise. Buster, the sheriff, or maybe he's just a local cop. I don't know. Um, comes back in the house and he can hear Paul shouting and he kicks open the basement door and you see him standing at the top of the steps. He sees Paul and then you hear the gunshot and his chest gets like blown out so Annie's behind him and she's shot him with a shotgun um but while Paul is down there in the basement he manages to grab some lighter fluid and you guys know where he puts that lighter fluid <laughs> uh his tidy whiteies Brian this is he's just the best point you've ever had about anything I think yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can only have a great point if it's related to underwear little known <laughs> um and so then they have a scene where he does one of James Conn does one of his corny lies and it's like, Annie, I want you to celebrate with me when we finish this book. And they have champagne and a nice dinner and he insists that she get a candle. And then and Brian, I, I, I hate to stop you. I think you're you're conflating some scenes. Yeah, fix it uh, for me. Yeah, that's a little early. So the, the candle dinners, he has this excellent plot to poison her with the pills she's been giving him. Um and that's when they have the candle at dinner. Uh, and he goes to put the, he puts the drugs in her wine, but she accidentally knocks it over. Her plot is foiled. Then um, the end of the movie, he promises her, he's basically about to finish the book. She's going to find out what happens to Misery. Uh, and he uses that as a ploy because when she comes in to get the, the chapters, he has them on the ground, mm-hmm. lighter fluid doused on them. He sets the book on fire. She... Goes to put it out. He bashes her over the head with the typewriter. A struggle ensues. Paul Sheldon uh, comes out victorious. (laughs) Yeah, and so he convinces her. I think his routine after he finishes a book, and she knows this because she knows everything about him, is to have a glass of champagne and a single cigarette. And so that's how he obtains matches to light the thing on fire, right? Yeah, he does that little one-thumb strike for the match. I couldn't do that in in a pressure cooker like that, Brian. I couldn't. Which okay. we see him do at the beginning of the movie, too, so that was a little bit of a hint. Special skill, special skill. You know what's funny is at the beginning of the movie, he finishes the book, 
He drinks his champagne. He lights the cigarette with that match flick. Then he comes outside and throws a snowball at a tree oh, yeah. and goes, still got it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, he's going to throw something that's going to like be what saves him. And then that never happened. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm glad out. it didn't. I would have been really disappointed if he, you know, hit her right in the forehead with a baseball to <laughs> escape. And, and use and that punchline. And then still got it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh hey steve do, uh, you, do you have something that you do when you finish a book like do you have like a tradition there oh good question uh no because finishing a book isn't isn't as portrayed in film believe it or not um you finish a draft and it's just this heaping pile of trash uh that you have to go back and fix basically everything about um and so you know even with ohio i i feel like i went through two and a half years of drafts on it. I think the, you know, 11, 12, 13 drafts. Um, and even when it's finished and the publisher has it, there are copy editors going through it. And then you realize, ah, I forgot about this thing. And yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it ever ends. Sure. Um, so I, I don't have a routine. Although throwing a snowball at a tree, I mean, that would be <laughs> as good as anything. I've also never smoked a cigarette, guys. Tell your audience that. Never <laughs> once in my life smoked a cigarette. That fits it's it's nothing of what I know about you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... <laughs> yeah, very counterintuitive. Very That's pretty remarkable, though. Good for you. Thank you. Thank you. Stay in school, kids. <laughs> um, yeah. Anything else, Steve? Any perspective oh. as an author that you want to add that we can't? There was the one table? thing I wanted to add about the ending and a difference between the book and the movie is that uh, in the movie he burns this misery manuscript, uh, the misery resurrection manuscript, in order to you know uh, get the drop on Annie Wilkes. But in the book, he actually just burns the top page with a bunch of unwritten paper on it because he, he can't bring himself to burn his novel. Oh, nice. uh, and I really think that's something the movie gets wrong uh, because, you know, I feel like I, I don't think I could burn my novel to escape Annie Wilkes. I would definitely, uh, you know, try to trick her. Yeah, he lost. I got it all worked out, guys. Don't worry. He lost uh, two novels in the course of this movie, right? Exactly. Seems like a lot. Oh, yeah, that's a lot of work. So in the in the book version, he keeps uh, the last misery book. He keeps the last misery book. That's correct. And All he, right. I assume he publishes it. Do you remember? Yeah, I think so. And it's the best misery book of all the misery books. Wow. Did you guys read a misery book? Did they sound intriguing to you? Or <laughs> I mean, they're kind of like pulp romance novels, right? These fictional yeah. books. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's not something I would typically read. It was like the Fifty Shades of Grey of the 90s or something. Ashwin, I can see you slipping into a bathtub with some candles and reading <laughs> a book. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm going to do after this uh, podcast. <laughs> uh, okay, guys. Well, zero uh, to five shattered ankles. What would you rate this movie and why? Ashwin? Um, I, I think I would, I would give it a four. Like, uh, I, I think it was really done at times. Like it, it, it's not obviously like a very scary movie. Um, I mean, compared to like the, the modern standard of horror where like they have all these tricks and effects and things, but I, I think her performance was really frightening and freaky and on, on the a simple premise, I think they did a really good job. Uh, so yeah, I would, I would, I would get a four. It's, it's pretty good. What do you think, Steve? 
well, you know, I think before I watched it, I was predicting I would have four shattered ankles for it. And then I, you know, I smoked a little legal California weed uh, and I watched the movie again uh, and I was like, this is great. And I just had a great time sitting in my room, watching it on my laptop. I'm even at five. Nice. Nice. Uh, well, I'm going to go in between. I, I had a great time too. It was an awesome movie. It was just like almost perfect and it was fun to watch. It wasn't too brutal, but it was tense and still had enough brutality to put you on the edge of your seat. And honestly, I think this is my weird thing again. The James Con lying <laughs> is the only thing that kept my kept me from giving it five. Something about it just didn't sit right with me. The snowball line? Uh, no, his lying. Oh, his lying. Okay. Like, the way he lied <laughs> to Annie. Like, something about it just yeah. seemed hokey to me. Yeah. But right. I, that's the way Annie was, so maybe that's the way he needed to talk for her to believe it. Right. Yeah, that means you're giving a quiet place five whatevers over miseries. Is that really how you feel? You got to understand, when I get the opportunity to go to a movie theater, I'm just so happy about it. <laughs> when I get back, and I'm ready to give anything a five. We have very different lives, Brian. I, I'm going to the movies tonight. I went last night. Uh, I have a movie pass out here. I walk to the theater. I basically go you know, three times a week. It's great. Wow. Well, today I picked up a piece of baby poop with my bare hand. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got one question for you guys. Um, if you could Kathy Bates someone, who would you guys uh, like? You know, do do that too in terms of like capturing. Great someone? question. Yeah. Like, who would we right. torture and hobble? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, um, I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> I'm not sure if I could think of a real life person uh, that I'd really want to do that to. Allow me to go, Brian, because I have, <laughs> I have an answer, obviously. Um, as you guys may know, LeBron James just moved out to Los Angeles uh, along with me. Uh, I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like the chances of me being an Annie Wilkes to Paul Shel- to his Paul Sheldon situation <laughs> are actually somewhat. That's like not a non-zero chance. We're talking like at least 5%. You would cripple like the and best NBA player out there just to give me. Yeah, like I'd him. make him wear a Cavs jersey. I'd be like, "Didn't you love playing with Kevin Love? Wasn't that the best part of your career? Was playing with Kyrie <laughs> Irving and Kevin Love? You know, just like that." Yeah, and so begins the restraining order, on <laughs> Steve. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I don't know if I can answer that. All right, we'll think on it. Hmm. Maybe the next time. Yeah, yeah, I'll think on it. And if I if it pops into my head before the end of this, I'll shout it out. <laughs> um, speaking of the end of this, anything else you guys feel the need to voice before we wrap things up? Uh, I had a great time. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you, Steve. Anything else uh, that you want to tell the listeners about your book, where they can find it, what date it comes out, remind them? Uh- yeah, so August 21st, wherever books are sold, uh, you should go to a, uh, a real live bookstore and buy it, I think. Those are, those are good things, and we need to keep them around. So that's my pitch. Nice. Uh, every once in a while, I go to a Barnes & Noble because they have a train set there that the source of the tiny baby poop I held today likes to play with, so <laughs> I will definitely be doing that. Excellent. Cool. 
Uh, well, that's all for this episode, folks. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion about misery. We hope you go out and buy a copy of Ohio as soon as it's in the physical bookstores. Um, so thanks for joining the discussion with us. If you want to voice your opinions on this movie, you can do that on Facebook. We're at Horror Movie Club Podcast on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Horror Movie Pod. You can shoot us an email at podcast at horrormovieclub.com. Uh, check out Facebook or Twitter for what movie we're going to do next week. And our logo is done by Amy Mae Popart. You can find her at Etsy.com. And until next time, if you're going to head out and go for a drive in a blizzard, uh, make sure your underwear are the perfect combination of spacious and tight because it might just save your life. 